I'd like to, to look a little bit at uh, Anne Perry's um, crime writing and then look at some of the, the resonances with her life, with her story and also finish perhaps with a little bit of uh, my own experiences in dealing with this biography and the issues that you have to navigate. So I'm looking at resonance and redemption, resonance being the relationships to her own life, redemption probably being something that not only Amperi is seeking but also her characters. So the adolescent murderers Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker were vilified occasionally in hysterical fashion by the New Zealand press in 1954. The prosecution's catch cry of dirty-minded little girls resounded through the media, as did uh, psychologist Medlicott's grossly insane. This is the polarity offered by a trial set out to establish guilt or innocence on the basis of badness or madness. So the irony was that um, both aspects of this dichotomy would outlive the trial and continue to fan public outrage and contempt in almost equal measure. The essentializing, all-consuming label, however, was evil. This contained bad and mad, but was bigger and beyond human redemption. Entries um, in Diary Like an Evil Mirror, read a headline from the New Zealand Herald during the trial, the barbarity and hopelessly irrational confidence of the accused, their youth, Parker's diary reflected the deterioration of the two girls like an evil mirror. Another one. Girls hear murder verdict unmoved, read a headline. This is the New Zealand truth after their sentencing. So effectively, until 1994, the world knew Anne Perry as the writer of best-selling crime fiction, which would eventually stack up to over 26 million book sales uh, worldwide. But hard on the tale of the release of Peter Jackson's film about the sensational uh, 1954 uh, Parker Hume murders, Heavenly Creatures, came the shocking revelation that Anne Perry had started life as Juliet Hume, the teenager convicted of jointly murdering her friend's mother. Life would never be the same for Anne again. And a new light was cast now not only on her life, but also about her writing. A murderer had gone on to become a celebrated writer about murder. So this seemed quite extraordinary, I think, understandably. But these were no simple crime stories. Spiritual and philosophical complexities thread the way through Anne Perry's works and the characters she creates. This talk today looks at some of the resonances between the 1954 Parker Hume murder and Anne Perry's crime detective fiction writing. So... Juliet Hume was released uh, from, from prison in New Zealand. I offered to write a book for HarperCollins based on a literary uh, biography, which obviously had to contextualise that murder. So in, in many respects, I, the book does a lot of this, the, the work, but here's a sort of, it's a kind of thumbnail sketch of some of the relationships. So Juliet Hume was released from prison in New Zealand in November 1959 with a new identity. She was actually called Anne Stewart. Uh, she later adopted her stepfather's name, Perry. 
Uh, she joined her mother and stepfather in the UK and worked there until after many unsuccessful attempts she was granted entry into the United States. She worked in the state of California for five years, returning uh, to the UK in 1972 when her stepfather became critically ill. So she bought a cottage in Darsham in Suffolk and decided to try and become a published author. She wrote many failed manuscripts before one was finally published. Two things turned Anne Perry's writing life around. Uh, one part of the solution came to her from her stepfather, Bill Perry. Um, a repeated criticism that she got back from publishers was that, Anne's, uh, was that Anne had a lack of a good plot and he suggested, uh, why don't you write a murder mystery set in the time of Jack the Ripper? So the Ripper story had fascinated people uh, the world over since um, 1888. It was an entree into the macabre mind of a murderer and the compulsions of serial killing. And the fact that the identity of the killer remained undiscovered seemed very, it's gone on being an appealing uh, mystery for everybody. And then there was the potential for 19th century costuming, the Victorian detail, the romantic allure of the period. And this was a perfect fit for a history buff like Anne. So this was a great sort of suggestion, but it was the plot uh, trimming strictures of the detective form that Bill recommended uh, which gave crucial definition and shape to her writing. So the second part of the solution came from a writer friend who recommended that she get an agent. So the second manuscript Anne Perry submitted to MBA, this is she submitted one that was sort of a fantasy history novel, terrible, and along with this um, she submitted The Catter Street Hangman and interestingly enough they read it and instantly responded to her and she got a call back um, uh, within a week or so and they said we really like this and within I think two weeks from that stage she had a contract. So uh, it had an amazing traction for her. So this book was first published in 1979, and at this stage she was already 39 years old. So that 26 million books has occurred in, in, that, in that framework. She writes, I don't have a character unless I have a face for them. She might almost have been looking in a full-length mirror when she found the face and physical appearance of Charlotte Allison. This is scenes from Prince Edward's Ardent Company production of this particular book. And so I guess this is a way of visualising it, but, you know, I don't have a character unless I have a face for them. And this is a very similar character in many physical respects to, to Anne Perry. So in Charlotte's long auburn hair, grey-blue eyes, pale skin, tall statuesque figure and ample and often proudly displayed bust. There is something of a match for Anne. Um, Thomas Pitt, that's her, her official detective, uh, was another matter. In his visits to the home of the upper-class Allison family in Catter Street, Charlotte sees him sideways with the same contempt Anne might well have felt. He came into, and this is a quote, into the morning room filling the doorway, coat flapping, hair untidy as always. His affability irritated Charlotte almost beyond bearing. His tatty scarf was wound once too often round his neck. His pockets bulged with a provision kit of essential detection hardware that includes actually a length of string and two marbles. Um, Pitt is from the wrong side of the tracks, or rather the estate, because his father was a gamekeeper, un 
justly accused of poaching and sent to, to Australia, interestingly enough. So this history provides Pitt with two things, a posh accent, because he has been educated with the son of the house, and a drive to right and justice. It was an ideal combination, perhaps, for an ambitious uh, working-class man in a late Victorian English police force that was changing to a professional organisation from a sort of uh, nepotism and privilege. So she had her two characters, and she would set her story in London and build her plot around a murder in a family. Um, I guess that, you know, people often say, write about what you know. It was in that context that she knew the positions of all of those people involved. It was not surprising that it had an instant traction, and it's not surprising that the genre gave her the structure to contain uh, the energy and imagination that she uh, has in such abundant amounts. So the, the family is actually Charlotte Allison's. The victim, interestingly enough, is her older sister, Sarah. She obviously had to pretty soon uh, killing off members of um, that family because otherwise she'd have none left. This in a way is the one where it starts off and she creates these characters she didn't know where they were going to go and then of course she has to work out different ways of continuing the story without necessarily killing off large numbers of the Allison family. The, the Allison household is ruled over by Charlotte's papa Edward, a true Victorian patriarch uh, she can steal only glimpses of the newspaper because it is considered inappropriate reading for a young lady. This means she must either flout the house rules or convince Dominic, Sarah's husband, to let her slip in and, and read the newspaper or possibly read it in the butler's pantry. In a way, Ampere uses this as an opportunity to explore feminism, uh, the strictures of women, the controls over this world and the very patriarchal kind of uh, family unit that, that she opens up the story in. So the news, as always, is terrible. It's the 20th of April 1881 and Benjamin Disraeli has just died. Charlotte's, and this is a quote, Charlotte's first thought was to wonder how Mr Gladstone felt. Did he feel any sense of loss? Was a great enemy as much a part of a man's life as a great friend? Surely it must be. It must be the cross thread in the fabric of emotions. Anne Perry opens with this powerful reflection on friends and enemies and continues throughout the novel to make searching and profound comments about human behaviour. She explores power and sexual inequality, incisively giving the most misogynistic, I think this is interesting, lines to the women who, who police patriarchal boundaries. She considers class difference and poverty and the lack of educational opportunity. She shows how greed and callousness may cause human deprivation, but also how this is maintained by those who turn their backs or live in unfeeling ignorance. She is most cuttingly critical, however, of the hypocrisy of established religion. There are few characters more abhorrent than the pompous Reverend Preble, who is called on to minister to grief-stricken friends and family after a series of apparent random grottings of young women whose flesh and clothes are ripped in a sexually perverse manner. 
Preble, who believes that women and sexuality are evil, is hopelessly insincere. His poor wife, Martha, convinced by his fundamentalist reading of Genesis, is filled with self-loathing and hatred. In conducting his interviews, he finds himself increasingly attracted to the independent and forthright Charlotte, who at first openly despises Pitt, but comes to realise that his slovenly working-class persona is only superficial and that it is the person inside who counts. This epiphany is the beginning of her maturation as a character. At the end of the novel, she agrees to jump the social divide and join Pitt in penury as the wife of a detective. Feminism had generated room for a fully functioning female detective. In the early days of the 20th century, women were on the cosy margins of the genre, wifely like Dorothy Sayers' Harriet Vane, Naya Marsh's Agatha Troy, and Marjorie Allingham's Amanda Fitton, elderly like Agatha Christie's gossiping sleuth Miss Marple, or fashionably impudent like Christie's Prudence Cowley of the uh, Tommy and Tuppence series. These characters were traces of oestrogen, in a testosterone-driven field. But by the 1970s, the world had changed, and detective fiction needed to change too. Now women protagonists needed to drive plots and define action, not act as adjuncts, victims, or shrews. It was a perfect pairing. Hope Dallin and St Martin's Press saw the market opportunity, and Anne created Charlotte Pitt. The catastrophe hangman had at its core the explosive implications of murder in a family. The suspicion, the revelation of infidelity, the death, the grief, the shame, which were at the heart of Anne's own story, and had also an amateur detective in Charlotte Pitt that had parallels in appearance and personality to her own Intimately, she knew these experiences, she knew these elements intimately, and she could tap into them easily to write this book, or relatively easily. And it's amazing. She Anne published uh, one book a year with St Martin's Press, who had the world rights to her books as well, and she produced about 10 books in total before she was able to become more self-determining. So it was her agent, Meg Davis, who worked out the solution to create an entirely new series. So this one was specifically for Random House's Ballantine imprint, and this is a quote from Meg. Uh, providentially, Anne had this thing in a cupboard that was the face of a stranger. The concept for Monk, a new series detective who was a recovering amnesiac, so quite interesting concept there. Meg remembers Anne's original idea had been that at the end of the first book, Monk actually discovers that he is the murderer. It's interesting she, she says he, that he did in fact commit the murder and he has got to go underground. This was the idea, that he'd have to go underground and then as an underground private investigator um, he can take on hopeless cases and sort them out by other means. So it was not within the structure of the system. So it was actually a very interesting format premise. It's interesting though that Leona, this is the person who was, was the editor for Ballantyne, was reluctant to make uh, Monk the murderer at all. And finally she actually vetoed this idea. Um, so Meg remembers her rationale. She felt that Americans wouldn't cope with the kind of darkness 
It had to turn out that he had left the guy for dead, but in fact didn't literally kill him. And weirdly for Americans, that let him off the hook and everything was fine. But it does mean that he could walk away and still be a member of society and solve crimes in a more traditional kind of footing. So you can imagine how this is problematic for readers. You can imagine how problematic it was when this woman discovered that, in fact, it wasn't just the character that committed murder, but the author. So the monk premise provided a perfect... A psychological landscape in which Anne could locate some of her own reflections on the struggle between good and evil and the many situations that make this absolute polarisation inappropriate, fluid and sometimes even sort of accidental. So the, the Pitt series to date uh, had been a measured examination of subjects in which uh, Anne took a relatively liberal position on feminism, marriage, the family, poverty, religious hypocrisy, incest, rape, prostitution, homosexuality. You know, she does a lot. You know, I think what's interesting is she understood what it felt like to be monk. She knew what choice and consequence was because what happens with Monk is he discovers, as he's regaining his memory, he discovers that he wasn't a very nice person. In fact, he discovers that he was a horrible person who created fear. So what he gradually does is discover that this person that he was was someone he can't respect, he can't love. And so it's a very interesting thing because he has no memory, so he starts to have to discover himself through other people's responses. So she knows about choice and consequence and what it's like to see other people's, in other people's eyes rather, the monster that is the perception of you. So he's recovering his memory through other people's eyes. She knows how that feels. If she had been allowed to make Monk a murderer, his life would have been pretty much a fictional projection of hers. But Leona and uh, Leona Nevler and Ballantyne books were not brave enough to trust the American readers to accept a murderer as a likeable, positive person. So the face of a stranger opens in, on the 31st of July. So she takes this back to 1856, the other ones in the 1880s, in a London hospital where Monk has lain close to death for three weeks. As consciousness dawns, he realises he can remember nothing. He does not know how he got there or even who he is. And this is a quote, panic boiled up inside him again and for a moment he could have screamed, help me, somebody, who am I? Give me back my life myself, he thinks. He has a past, but he can't remember it. He has an identity which he's unaware of. He's effectively no one. And I think there's an interesting parallels to the way that um, Juliet Hume, as Anne Stewart, left New Zealand. But he does have an innate sense of self-preservation, so he keeps this knowledge to himself, revealing his amnesia would only make him vulnerable, and somewhere back in the dark recesses of his damaged mind, he knows vulnerability is dangerous. On his release from hospital, he finds his rooms at 27 Grafton Street. He meets his housekeeper, Mrs. Worley, and discovers himself for the first time in the mirror. And I think that's quite an interesting concept. He discovers himself in the mirror 
the face he sees looking back is a strong one. He is dark with, and this is a quote, a broad, slightly aquiline nose, wide mouth, eyes intense, luminous grey in the flickering light. It was a powerful face, but not an easy one. If there was humour, it would be harsh, of wit rather than laughter. He estimates that he is anywhere between 35 and 45 years old, but it is in the, in the reaction of others that he begins to see the inner man. Colleagues are frightened of him, they cower at his cruelty and despise his single-minded selfish ambition. No one cares and no one likes him. But is this really fear? After all, he was hearing only one side of the story. There was no one to defend him, to explain, to give his reasons and to say what he knew and perhaps did not. And his greatest fear as he turns to work, returns to work at the Metropolitan Police Force and begins to unravel the deadly bashing of Major Grey as he goes through this first book, The Face of a Stranger. He's, he's looking to see whether he, uh, to find out whether he is the murderer himself and that, that's very much the worry for him through the whole book until the, the murder is resolved. It would not surprise Runcorn, his superior officer at work, if he was revealed as the murderer. He feels some intense, unspoken animosity towards Monk. That was never entirely untangled, even in this book. Runcorn guesses Monk's identity crisis by spotting gaps in his memory. Towards the end of the book, Monk tells Hester Latterley, who will later become his wife, a usually independent, sometimes acerbic woman about his amnesia. So he, one person guesses, he tells her. Although throughout the book, it's interesting, Monk's murder case, right through it, right through that case, they squabble, these two, Hester and Monk, and she is, you know, quite critical of him right through it and finds him really despicable at times. But when he admits that he has this missing memory, she's completely sympathetic. She thinks to herself, how extraordinary and terrible. I do not always like myself completely, but to lose yourself, I cannot imagine having nothing at all left of all your past, all your experiences, and the reason why you love or hate things. Hester is the light side to Monk's darkness. Perhaps in that respect she is rather too ideal, but she does possess a challenging perceptive quality that Anne admires. She has a heartfelt contempt for hypocrisy and incompetence and will not suffer fools. And this is a quote, she is highly intelligent with a gift for logical thought, which many people found disturbing, especially men who did not expect it or like it in a woman. So that's a quote from the book. Hester is among the first women to join Florence Nightingale at Scutari in Turkey, close to the carnage of the Crimean War. Her fine brain makes her invaluable in the administration for the hospitals in dealing with the critically uh, injured. And it also, when she returns and becomes part of Monk's life, it makes her a darn good sleuth. So for Anne, amnesia... It's just a convenient means of revealing things retrospectively, a perfect device for the detective fiction writer because it leaves tracks of information obscure and suspenseful. But it is not the matter of forgetting 
that you have murdered someone that ignites her interest here, I think. And this, I think, is quite personal. This, in, in a way, the, the notion of amnesia is quite a short-lived um, sensational thing. What I think matters to her in the face of a stranger is Monk's loss of self, the absence of an identity, the lack of a voice to explain, the horror of seeing himself through others' eyes as brutal and cruel when he has to believe that this is only part of the picture. So uh, that's a bit of a look at her work and some relationships to her life. It was an a, a, a almost impossible thing getting Anne Perry on board with this book. And I'm afraid it, it required some, almost, I wouldn't say unethical, but pushing the boundaries of what, what I think is ethical. She turned me down twice. I took that as no, and, but I felt like it was a story I needed to tell. And I had done a lot of work on it previously, and it's part of my life. My mother was at school with Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker. I taught at Girls High briefly when the uh, decision was being made to whether they would uh, lend the uniforms for Peter Jackson's movie. And I was um, sitting in the theatre when Peter Jackson sort of bumbled onto stage and, and sort of introduced his movie. And so I'd sort of been there at quite a lot of the important moments of the story. And so I felt like I wanted to tell it. I, t I did say I'd accepted their, their negative reaction. Then on, on a flight back after filming uh, Artsville program for, on Naya Marsh, I suddenly realised that I perhaps her books were so rich and so interesting and there was so much in the public domain, perhaps I could write uh, a book. And it was sort of it was an epiphany for me. And so I, I immediately went to the local cafe and I pounded out a, a proposal and sent it into HarperCollins. And I think they were almost, they were reluctant to accept it uh, because she wasn't uh, participating in it. And what happened after that was that I had a, a, a crisis. I was so enthusiastic about getting this contract. When I finally got it, I was looking forward to it so, so long. And then I, I just couldn't read her books anymore. I just couldn't go back there. I couldn't pick it up again. And I, I couldn't really work out why. And then I, the more I sat there and thought about it, the more I realised that it was because it was, it was sort of like a rape, I felt. It was dealing with someone's intimate life and intimate story without any of their awareness or participation or involvement, or actually without any engagement at all. And so I rang up HarperCons and I said, I don't know that I can carry on with this. And, and I was mulling it over and my partner said, why don't you just say you've got a contract, go back to them again, and so I, um, I did, and by the return email I got uh, next morning, send us the proposal. So I actually did have quite a lot of the murder in the proposal at the front of it, and I felt that maybe that was some story, that, that was kind of the story she already knew. I did reduce a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> and sent it back to HarperCollins, no, that was fine. And then I sent it to them. And I got an email from Meg Davis, and she said, thank you very much, I'll, I'll send that on to Anne, and we'll get back to you. Um, that's very helpful. And 21 minutes later, uh, there was another email, and, it's, and it said, um, Anne will meet you in London. It was a very strange thing, and I think that um, people say to me, what was it, what was it that, that turned her around? And I didn't actually ever ask her, because I was terrified that if she thought about it really hard, she might say no. 
So this is what I did have as a sort of concluding paragraph. Um, it is amazing to have discovered a voice for Juliet Hume in the writing of Anne Perry, and New Zealand needs to listen. It is time to move on from the 1950s, the details of which have been frozen in time and ground over long enough. In today's context, this is punitive and embarrassing. Anne Perry's story needs to grow to leave behind the terrible mistake of a young teenager and mature to acknowledge the remarkable adult contribution and achievement of one of the world's most well-known crime doyens. But one of the things that Anne Perry's very strong about and, and is, is this, the lack of voice, this, the sense of powerlessness. I think that was what really got, got her involved. But of course, um, they weren't very positive about me and um, what happened was we met and two hours into this meeting I said, would you mind if I turn the tape recorder on? And she said, no, that's fine. And I think that was it. I, I, I thought there would be some sort of orchestra playing somewhere, but no, there wasn't. It was just turning on, it was just an acknowledgement that no, we could start. Um, kind of, I had full access to everything. I'm surprised. I wouldn't have done it. And I read this, this email. This is between uh, Anne Perry's agents and her publishers. I don't think this particular author is the right person. That's me. She's based in New Zealand, which will put Anne's hackles up. She's published a biography of Naya Marsh. She sent her academic CV, which would suggest her approach will be more focused on Anne's work and less on her life. However, she's not got much of a track record, and I think we could aim higher. That was quite bruising, actually, for my ego. <laughs> and when I took it to um, Meg and I said, oh, this is an interesting thing I've read, and she backpedaled, but not successfully enough to make me feel that much better. But uh, So essentially they felt they, I had actually um, backed them into a corner, but they didn't know that, that my story or my backstory to, to being there. I felt in many ways that really this has never been an authorised um, biography. Uh, this has probably been much more of a hijacked biography in a way. Certainly they still feel like that. But the issue is that she did participate and I think that they were wrong about the fact that this person was the wrong person. In fact, I think a New Zealander was the perfect person to write this biography and I think someone from Christchurch um, with those kind of connections who could actually put aside the world in which Juliet Hume was demonised and find the adult who's emerged from that world and uh, you know, I, th I think that was important and I think it was important and they didn't realise it because that wasn't their world and I don't think they realised how much of um, Anne Perry is actually defined by her New Zealand experiences. What I, when, I, when I was there talking to her and I spent hours and hours and hours and hours with Anne Perry and I had hours and hours and hours of recordings so many that I got I bought an iPod so that I could walk around because I was getting um, I was almost getting bed sores listening to the tapes you know from from my backside on the chair so at one stage I said oh, something about being crook and she goes she sort of has a wee bit of a laugh to herself and I could see that she found that amusing and I suddenly realized that it was that expression that had made a smile and I said everything about me must take you back to New Zealand my accent must remind you of it my expressions everything must take you back there and I said is that uncomfortable for you and she said 
don't you think that the most defining, shaping, formative years of my life were spent in New Zealand? She said, this is familiar to me and I don't feel that angst-ridden about it. In fact, I think going back there it was a wee bit like facing your demons in a way, in a way she faced New Zealand and facing me and I think it was much more comfortable for her than perhaps she expected and perhaps less chilling in a way than I expected. What's been amazing for me is that one of the arguments I see echoed is the fact that Anne Perry controls people, New Zealanders usually. In the 1950s it was Juliet Hume controlling Pauline Parker and in the 19 or the 2012 the same assumptions are being made that is an appalling echo it's a disgraceful echo for New Zealand not to be able to believe that New Zealanders have some ability to act and think independently this kind of echo is very uncomfortable and I, I hope you can see that especially when I'm very used to uh, dealing uh, with the um, pressures of people wanting a certain story told. I've told my own story, I found my own voice in this, um, in this project and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I enjoyed talking to Anne Perry and I've enjoyed writing and reading the books and, and in some ways it's been a very um, liberating and, and enjoyable experience. And I've also, in, along the way, met some fascinating people, and some of them after the book has come out, which is interesting. And there's two people here today, um, Shona Murray and Elizabeth Simcock, whose fathers were involved with the girls' care, with Anne particularly, at Arahata and at Mount Eden Prison. But um, I've got a little bit from, Sh from Shona here, which I think is really, um, really helpful. She says here, it was interesting in, in the book to read about Phyllis Freeman. She was a lifer, and she used to uh, do the cooking at Arahata. She was, show, well, she writes, she shows ultimate forgiveness for a person who used strychnine to kill someone. But she writes here, my parents' belief in clean slates for people, whatever they had done, became the foundation for my teaching philosophy throughout my career working with young people. And I think New Zealand should be proud of what it's done for both those women because it has allowed them to left New Zealand uh, and lived useful, productive and I think, I, I'd like to say redemptive lives, but you know, maybe that's history will decide that but certainly useful and decent ones and I think that it's a credit to New Zealand that that's happened. Thank you very much.